On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Lewis Bruder. He is the Director of Data Science at Foot Locker. We're going to be talking all about experiments and, and managing them and who makes the decision to put an experiment in play. How does that get judged? You know, we have to decide a success around it and has to go to production and what happens after it goes into production. Lewis is an expert in this area. I'm, I'm excited to have him on and share his thoughts. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Amir. Absolutely. Let's start at the top. I know Foot Locker's a common name, but we like to do two things on the show. One is to know where you're working and then what some of the responsibilities are in your day-to-day. So if you want to start off there, we'll jump right in. Absolutely. So I manage a team of data scientists who focus on supporting the company's strategy. And that is by creating innovative products and service that would streamline internal business process or even target some specific source of revenue. And that mainly include working closely with our main internal business areas, such marketing, finance, and supply chain management. About the company, Foot Locker is a pretty common name out there, but for those who don't know exactly, we have 2,800 retail stores, plus a massive online share of the sneaker and sports apparel market. Some brands include Kid Foot Locker, Champ Sports, East Bay, and others. Some of these brands are are actually international only, such as Sidestep and WSS. And we are actually currently in 28 countries. So the main point for the companies is not only sell the sports apparel, but a little bit of the sneaker culture. You know, we wanted to attract people who love sneakers, who collect them. And these are the main customers that we like to have. Awesome, man. So I guess, you know, talking about experiments, obviously you guys are you know, massive in the e-commerce space, both you know, in-store and online. We're probably talking about some, some of the online factors here. Let's set the context of experiments and what that looks like you know, within your world. What is an experiment categorized as? Just to set a baseline that we'll kind of dive in into, you know, what goes into it. Yeah, so I think the main differentiating point between managing engineering teams and data scientists, it's just that. It's the experience phase. And the key word, I would say, it's uncertainty. From my experience, usually on the engineering side, you have a little bit more control of the results. When you write a piece of code, you kind of know what you need to do and how to write the code. Of course, there are roadblocks in terms of creating code, and sometimes you, you hit them and you have to find work around. But overall, it's very deterministic. So you kind of know where your objective is. And if that all goes well, you get to your results. On the science side, it's a tiny bit different. Pretty much everything that you you wanted to build, you need to test it before. And then you have to do this test assuming before you can accomplish a task. And that's why I'm defining here as experimentations. It's a series of subtasks that precede a project to evaluate even if it's possible achievable, and sometimes within the restrictions that we have, which is time and budget. Makes sense. And in terms of, you know, when we're looking at these experiments and we want to, you know, talk about, you know, how they get set up, I guess, let's just start at the top and kind of walk through that process, especially, you know, how you do it on your team and, and kind of whatnot. When you're going to set up, you know, the experiment, Who's involved in the decision in terms of what that experiment should be? Where, where does it even start within the ideation process for you guys? Okay, great questions. Well, I created my own definition and classification of experience, which I call, I divide them in two types. One I call a proof of concept. 
and the other one I call R&D, which is research and development. A proof of concept is an idea, but it's usually brought by a business partner or a data scientist that's been working really closely with the business. And it's all about proving or disproving a specific hypothesis that directly impacts a business functions. And by that, something that we can directly assign a dollar amount for us. So for instance, we have a, a recommender, a product recommender that based on what you look in the website, will recommend another one that clearly have a business case for it because I mean, uh, w- the business case is improving in sales. Now on the RD side, this is a little bit more uh, what I call a deep dive in a technology or a specific platform to understand its inner workings and to qualify it for use at a later time. So this one, the difference here, it's not really attached to a business case immediately, but it could be in the future. But for instance, uh, I have my data scientists looking into language models, for instance. Whether I don't have a business case for that right now, if I have somebody that can understand, explain that concept to somebody else, when a business case comes, the person is more prepared. So it's a little bit more preparing the data scientists for the future. That's a great, actually, you know, I guess distinction. So in terms of your team, you know, what's the balance of that look like in terms of the types of experiments you guys get? Okay, yeah, it varies a lot. Right now, we're getting more focused on the marketing and the customer side. And then the way it works is we usually work with a business owner for that. We assign an owner for that specific experiment. And sometimes we have one or two more data scientists work with them in order to develop that business case. And if it is successful, then we apply a more formal approach in terms of using Agile to guide through the process of development and production rollout. In case they are not successful, we shelve it and move on to the next one. I guess when you're looking at, you know, setting up an experiment and I, I guess, you know, competing resources, right? So, you know, you, your team has ideas, business has ideas. How do you evaluate what to work on? Because I guess, you know, can't can't pick at all. Yeah. And how do you handle that conversation internally? Yeah, no, it's a great point. So I think it. I try to align as much as the cases as we can with the current business strategy. So if the focus right now is focused on, let's say, supply chain management, those experiments that are related to that area will take a higher priority. Right now, because these are not really projects, I kind of make the decision of what goes forward and what not, because it's just something that lives in the ether, right? It's not really a project at that point. So, but in terms of experimentation, I analyze the current situation, the company, current strategy, where are we going? And I try to line up those experiments first. And I know time permitting, we start picking up others. And obviously, yeah, there's always going to be trade-offs. And and when this team, you know, you guys actually put together the team, you know, the, well, before you get to the team, you decide on the experiment and somebody has to be point person. Does that point person, yeah, you know, wh- whose responsibility is that? I mean, I'm sure somebody from your team, but who owns that experiment moving forward? Is it the business potentially, if it's a proof of concept, they're responsible for, I guess, not not the actual work, right? Like some of the, the criteria that goes into it. Does it shift completely to your team? Yeah, no, we do have to work very closely with the business and we usually assign a product owner for that experiment, which is the task is not as elaborate of being a product owner in the role, uh, a normal project, I would say it requires less time. But in any case, this person will be 
working together with us to evaluate the results, which is the most important part, obviously. At some point, we need to make that decision whether it will become a formal product, part of the company's portfolio, or is something that we're just going to scrap. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, you, you, if it's not working, it's not going to go into production. Exactly. Yeah, the success criteria is, I guess, to kind of like talk about that. Like, you guys have to determine what that is. Where does that conversation start? Because obviously, if it's an experiment, you know, putting it together hypothesis, you're testing it. When does that criteria, I guess, uh, there's different stages of criteria based on, you know, setting up the initial experiment versus, hey, to get into production. How does that success criteria look? Yeah, that is a great question, Amir. And uh, I have to say, from my experience, the success criteria has been a little flexible as we learn more about the experiments. Because when you start, you really don't know much about what even the results you're going to get. So it's very hard to think about how we're going to score this against some business benefit. I think to answer that question is, it takes a little bit of uh, maybe a two-week process where we start just to gather the ideas around and then we say, okay, this is, is looking like it's going to solve the problem X. Once we got to that point, then yes, then we start defining the criteria, which is, you know, it has to fully solve the problem X, for instance. It has to be between ten dollars and $20,000, for instance, just an example. And it has to use the current architecture that we have in place. So it kind of depends a little bit, but you only get your full matrix evaluation matrix of what that's successful or not after you do some work. And I guess as you guys go through that process and uh, you know, it makes sense, you got to have some flexibility up front. You don't know what you don't know. And then once it goes into production and you obviously have established you know, success criteria, what happens to that success criteria once you're into production? Does it stay pretty consistent? Is it still flexible as it's in production? Obviously, it's going to see a lot more use cases. I mean, how does that change over time in production? Yeah. So let me clarify one thing. So the step to go from an experiment to a project mm -hmm. is where you apply the success criteria. So that is just a gate to move the experimentation from the experimentation status to a project status. Once it becomes a full project, then, you know, you have, hopefully you have a budget and you have a team assigned that's going to work through developing the code and productionize it. At that point, you know, it is a product part of the company's portfolio. Those criteria used are no longer valid and actually they may change very soon after it goes to production. But I just wanted to clarify that part. Absolutely. That makes sense. Yeah. I think we skipped a step there. And I think to your point, when you're going from, you know, obviously the initial experiment, you have to develop it, then it goes into production. During that process, when you kind of look back over that various success criteria and then establishing what the expected, you know, value should be once in production, how does that, I guess, look as you're looking across that lifespan of the, you know, experiment to production, you know, life cycle? Well, I think the experiment just define how the product will work. So we always look for keeping consistency in terms of defining what criteria is to make that project successful. And once in production, obviously, we'll have to keep bringing that success that we anticipated. But on, on very rarely occasions, this is not the case. Usually, we have a pretty solid business case before going to development and then to production. 
what happens sometimes that models behave differently. Sometimes you don't get the accuracy that you're expecting when you did your tests, but that's usually an adaptation or a change that you need to do in the code here and there, maybe bring some data. We're going a little bit on a, on a different tangent, which is data drift. But I just wanted to say, usually the guardrails that you put in the beginning of the experiment are still valid when the project is, is rolled out into production. So I guess as you go through the life cycle from you know setting up the experiment to becoming a project, going into production, how does the relationship with business evolve or, or does it evolve? Is it say pretty consistent? What happens to that relationship? No, it does evolve, and it's usually more common to start involving different partners as the project becomes more, I would say, solid and serious. You know, there are cases that you start with one product owner, but then we start involving other areas in the same project. For instance, I developed one in the past that was a forecasting system that was built for the operational department, but then the finance department became interested when we thought that we had a product ready to go live. So I think that the relationships evolves a lot. We start talking to a lot more people and that's good for the for my area because they have more visibility and work on more requests. Very cool. I guess for your team, as they're creating their own you know, R&D experiments, or maybe they need their time to work on stuff, to experiment on their own, and they're experimenting on new technology ideas and you see proof of concepts, how does your team align those opportunities to you know, try something new or, or implement something new and an actual experiment? Is it the internal team's experimentation? Do that, does that need to go through a similar life cycle before it gets applied to business? What kind of you know, relationship is it in terms of you know, some of the R&D you guys do and moving it into production usage? So now the RD is a little more flexible. I actually, I set specific times of what we call RD time during the week that the data science can dig in and look for, you know, interesting architectures, platform, code, anything they want. I like to leave it very open in terms of uh, not restricting about using this or this A or B technology because I like them to be able to do the experimentation they want. One of the things that I'm getting out is not only the knowledge they're learning, but it's a little bit add some fun, right? Data science love to play with new stuff and see what's out there and play around with libraries and architecture. So I, my idea is to work a little bit on the motivation as well so they can take on something that they really love to do. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. They want to pick up those new skills as well. I guess to kind of go through the, the life cycle, once you're in production and the team has to maintain it, how do you balance the time, I guess, the team spends in maintaining some of the work they've done versus like new work because obviously they might have to go back revisit it or whatnot but obviously they're focused on new experiments moving to projects along the way yeah it's a great question fortunately we haven't had a lot of issues or bugs or maintenance requests lately but you know knock on the wood never know our first priority, obviously, if it's something breaks in production, the code's not working, we need to have somebody to fix it right away because production is where the business is making decisions. They're basing their decisions on those numbers and they need to be you know, as accurate as possible. So I, I would say right now the team spends maybe 30% time on, on maintenance and support and 70% on, on projects, which I find that it's a great balance to keep people motivated and going. 
as we expand the number of models in production, obviously there's going to be more maintenance needed. I've seen companies working on on teams that you divide between project teams and support team. I'm toying with this option and for the near future, but we're not quite there yet. Hmm. Interesting. I guess when you're thinking ahead and looking at, you know, maybe potentially splitting up those teams, I guess some people will be happy with the decision of you know working on new stuff versus maintaining it. Is that a potential challenge or is that just people accept, you know, there's different responsibilities? Well, believe it or not, I do hire people in the past who they absolutely love doing production support. Mm. So not everybody, not everybody <laughs> wants to be in project. Yeah, it, it's it's surprising because I, I, I was surprised as well. But there are some people out there, they really like that thing. It's a little bit more, there's no surprises, right? It's kind of day-to-day activity that you do, you do your job good and you're golden. I think on the project side, you have a lot more surprises, more things coming out of the blue that you're not expecting. So uh, believe it or not, I do find that there's jobs for both types of personalities. There you go. There's, There's different temperaments out there. Talking about, you know, the experimentation component of it and you know managing the experiments from your just experience i always like to you know look back and go you know based on having done it all these years are there a couple of things that stand out that you know you've learned that that you're like i wish you knew that earlier that you could share two things come to mind one is um on experiment and r&d you, you have to be a little more lenient with those experiments because you know it's just like what i said before they were very uncertain so if you start keep pushing for results 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 you may get some results but not the results the company needs and that's not good then you're just wasting time so i think working on lenience is, is great it's something that i learned and also uh, managing expectations is really huge because in terms of experiments and ideas, you get everybody in a room, everybody has an idea of how to solve a problem, and things can get out of hand very quickly. Many times folks come with preconceived notions of what can be accomplished, and you add that to some market hype out there in terms of artificial intelligence. This plays like a big role in terms of becoming an explosive combination. When people say, hey, my friend works at Google, is doing something similar, and they're very successful, why this is not working, you know, things like that. So I think uh, working on on the expectations is, is very crucial. Absolutely. Yeah, I've constantly hear on from guests, you know, machine learning is always the answer. Yeah. And <laughs> helping set the context is super important, which is interesting because, you know, everyone has ideas to help their own business unit and team to get what they want. They think there is a silver bullet out there that they're going to be reaching for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's yeah, fantastic. I think that's a whole different podcast episode on its own. I was going to ask you if there is a question or topic that you'd love to have a future guest answer. It could be a single question. It could be a whole topic. Just curious to see what you'd like to hear about. There's one thing that I would like to hear, specifically for my area. I would like to hear a little bit on activities related to business development and what I'm going with this is the following. I have worked in the past with several vendors in my area, and I do find that some of them use some kind of sales tactics that are more applicable to used car salesmen, not to seven-figure software projects. I just wanted to see if there is anybody out that can that have the same experience as me or is just you know happening within my world. 
but it was a long question, but it's a question. No, that's interesting. Obviously, you know, you, you probably are approached by vendors all the time and the bigger the price tag, the more value you need to show. So I'm sure there might be someone out there. A, maybe we could do a short podcast about that or if they just want to reach out to you directly to provide that, that could be really good as well. And good segue to knowing how to contact you. A lot of people like LinkedIn or Twitter. Is that a preferred way you'd want somebody to reach out to you? Yes, I use LinkedIn pretty much daily. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, please send me a message. I like to grow my network as well. So feel free to send me an invite if you need, if you want. All right. Louis, I appreciate your time. I think a uh, super interesting topic. I think we could keep diving into the details further, but I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on and sharing. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Amir. Absolutely. That's it for this episode. We'll be back again, different guests, different topic. Two things. One, if you're someone that can speak to Luce's question about how uh, the business development side impacts your world in terms of uh, dealing with vendors through a sales process, reach out to me. I'd love to do an episode around that or reach out to Luce directly and you guys can chat. And secondly, you know, if you do find the podcast valuable, share it. That's how we've been growing. And I appreciate everyone does. Until next time. Thank you and goodbye. <music>